0: Pretty fun intro music. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Believe it or not, we are going to progress forward in Luke chapter 4 today. I'm excited about it. We're going to cover 16 verses, so buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be fun. I know, right? So out of character. Uh, I'm excited, man. You know, we we are. the last four weeks, we uh, we spent a lot of time looking at the temptation of Jesus, and last week I just really felt impressed to, to go and talk about grace uh, for a moment on the heels of that, and then I got to talk to a couple of different people this week who really kind of had a fresh revelation of, of grace in their life, which, man, that's You know, as a pastor, that's what you want to hear. Um, So today we're going to move to a new section in the book of Luke. And we've talked about this before. The book of Luke is divided up into sections. We started out with the narrative of the birth story and all the things that God was doing in that. And then we moved into Jesus' baptism and the temptation, which is kind of this isolated period of time in his life. And now we're going to move into, for me, what feels like it's going to be the real, real fun part, where we start looking at parables and the ministry of Jesus. And so today we find ourselves... Um, a little bit in in the the transition period, we we previously learned about the you know the miraculous conception, the birth, the baptism. We finished up last week talking about how Jesus defeats Satan in the wilderness, which is super exciting. In all of those previous parts of Jesus's life, we see the move movement of the Holy Spirit. God is is active and He's present. He's making all of these things happen. Specifically in the birth narrative, we see a ton of that where God's moving in people and and through uh, angels and things like that. And then also when we we see Jesus being baptized, God speaks from heaven and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then in we see the Holy Spirit move Jesus into the desert and the Holy Spirit is with Jesus as he has these confrontations with the enemy. And today we're going to see Luke continue to move forward. This is a significant theme in the Gospel of Luke. It's not just that Jesus was here on his own, it's that the Holy Spirit is present, he's active in Jesus' life, and it's Jesus following of the Holy Spirit, the obedience of the Holy Spirit that Luke really wants us to point out. And so we're going to see this over and over and over again as we move through the book of Luke. But um, today specifically in chapter 14, I mean in chapter 4 verse 5, 14 and 15, we're going to see that Luke is doing an introduction to the, to the ministry of Jesus. So let's read those two verses. We'll kind of talk about that a little bit and then we'll move further into the passage. So starting out in verse 14, uh, it says, let me find it here on my page, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. One of the things that we need to understand about these two verses in particular is that they frame this portion of Luke's gospel from, from this point, from, from verse 16 all the way to Luke chapter 9 verse 50, Luke is going to share about the northern ministry of Jesus, meaning that he is in the northern region of the area of Galilee. And this is, is important for us to see this. We're going to see that during this time in this area of, of Israel, disciples are called. People are healed, evil spirits are driven out. Jesus even raises someone from the dead. There's the Sermon on the Mount, there's the, the feeding of thousands and, and many lessons and parables that Jesus shares while he's in this geographic region. Matthew even references this geographical region in Jesus' ministry there and in his gospel as well. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 it says, now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom." And healing every disease and sickness among them. I don't know about you, but what comes to mind when you think about the location of Jesus' teaching? I know there are particular parts of my mind, uh, and we'll read this story pretty soon, in Luke where uh, he's teaching and the, the men come with the paralytic and they can't get into the house where Jesus is. And so they, they climb up on the roof and tear a hole in the roof and lower Jesus down. Like I got a pretty good idea what, in my mind of what that might look like. But if I'm honest, when I look at scripture most of the time, when I hear these parables, when I'm hearing about these stories, the place that's in my mind geographically is Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but that's what comes to mind for me and the surrounding area. However... That's not where this is happening at. All of this is happening in Galilee. I think for most of us, when we think about this ministry, we think a lot about the stories and and we start working through them. We picture them happening in and around Jerusalem. And this all happens in the northern region of Galilee. I I have a couple of maps I want to share with you today. Um, But this one in particular, I just want us to kind of have a better sense of what it was like. And this is the view from the northwest shore of Galilee. So I don't know about you, but I've come to really enjoy being on beaches And I looked at a lot of different pictures, and this is, like, I went to Google Maps, typed in Sea of Galilee, went to Street View. Y'all do that from time to time? This is a really great glimpse. This is not from Street View. This is somebody else's picture. But this is what the Sea of Galilee looks like. A lot of times there's not even plants, it's just rocks, but beautiful blue water. And so as we're working through this section up until chapter 9 verse 50, when you're thinking about what did the places look like as Jesus is doing this ministry, when Jesus is walking on water, when he calms the storm, this is the body of water that we're talking about. For me, it's important because I'm a visual learner to be able to see and to think about the places, what what we're looking at. As we're learning about what Jesus is doing, we begin to picture what it looked like in that setting. This statement in verse 14 and 15 that Luke makes in these few verses serve as a moment to show the reader that the focus of the book is shifting. Luke is going to spend the next several chapters talking about the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that is working through him. And it's important to note that as we move into this next section, some of the stories are not written in chronological order. For Luke, the fact that something happened was way more important for him than when it happened. And I mention that now because it's going to help us kind of sort out some of the details of the stories, particularly in the one that we're going to talk about today. Because one, what we're going to read today, you're going to see at the end of it that Jesus references some of the things that he's already done. But if you look at this in chronological order, the way Luke writes it, this is the first step of ministry, but it's not. Luke is pulling this story of something that happened and putting it at the beginning, and we're going to talk about why he does that today. Okay The primary focus of this portion of Jesus's ministry was going to be to teach and preach to his fellow Jews in the synagogues in the Northwest region of Galilee I've got another map, if Anna, if you'll pop that up there. I want you to look at this map, and I want you to get an idea of where some of these places are. I don't know how well you can see it, but this right here is the Sea of Galilee, okay Capernaum is here, Nazareth is down here. It's hard for me to even read that, but Jerusalem is way down here somewhere, so we're way away from Jerusalem. But this is the area, Galilee, where Jesus grew up, and that's where our story for today is going to take place, is in Nazareth, okay? It's going to be obvious as we read the next few verses that that this isn't the first appearance of Jesus. Rather, this is one that Luke is using, this story he's using specifically to set the tone of Jesus' ministry in this region. And Luke shows us that Jesus began there preaching in the synagogues he was rejected by the people, and then his ministry spread out to the Gentiles from there. Interestingly, just, just as a side note, we see Paul follow this same example as he begins his ministry as it's recorded in Acts. But let's look at this next section together. We're going to read verses 16 through 30. I know it's a lot. Hang in there with me, but it's a, it's a good story. It's got, some, got a little drama in it. It's got a little meat to it. So let's pick up in verse 16, and we'll stop at verse 30. It says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Okay, this is his hometown. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, "'The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor.'" Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And when the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, he began saying to them, "'Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled.' They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by his gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, "'Isn't this Joseph's son?' Then he said to them, "'No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. "'Doctor, heal yourself. "'What we've heard that took place in Capernaum do here in your hometown also.'" He also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, but I say to you, there were certainly many widows in, Israel's, in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow of Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and not, yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Man, what a story to start with, right? Talk about drama. Jesus shares a little scripture, has a little moment with them, and the result is they want to kill him. There's a lot happening here. But I want us to start today with an understanding of what this process, what just happened, looked like. i got another picture up here. i got a lot of visuals today. This is a typical synagogue. This is actually a reproduction of the one in Capernaum. But I want you to notice a couple of things. Primarily, this area right here. This building was a big square, most synagogues were. And along the outside edge, under the covered area, was the seating area. And so it was, I don't know if y'all ever heard of church and around. Have y'all ever heard of that before where the band and the preacher stands in the middle and the seats are all around. If we were in in that kind of a setting today, if we wanted to do church and around, that would mean the chairs were on the outside edges and the band and the preacher would be in the middle, okay? That was typical for them. And then up here, and that's where the men would be, and then up here at the top is where all the women would be up in the balcony section, okay? And so here's what this looked like, because I want us, again, I want us to picture this. I want to be in the moment. So Jesus is invited by the the leaders of the synagogue to come and preach. This was a normal practice. When you had somebody come into town who was well-known, who was teaching, the, the leader of the synagogue would say, hey, won't you come teach at my church today, my synagogue? And they'd say, okay. And so Jesus is invited. He comes in. He goes to the center of that square and he's handed the scroll, he opens it, he decides where to read, and normally what would happen is they would read a portion of scripture, and then they would go sit down, in some places he calls it the seat of Moses, but in the chair of the preacher, and then they would expound upon, they would explain the verse, they would, they would talk about what God was doing in that verse, and what, it sounds a lot like a sermon, right? That's what Jesus is doing. So he opens up the scroll, and by the way, everyone's really excited that he's there. This is, this is that guy that's been healing everybody. Remember, this is not the first act of ministry that he's done. Luke is picking this story kind of out of the middle of his ministry. Jesus shows up. They've been hearing about all the stuff he's been doing in Capernaum. He's been healing people. He's been feeding people. He's been teaching. This dude is well-known. He's a famous figure. And so he comes in, he reads the scroll, and people are just waiting with anticipation. He, I, I can just picture it in my mind. He rolls the scroll up, he hands it back to whoever gave it to him, and he goes and sits down. It's one of those moments, just like this one, where you could just hear a pin drop, and people are waiting with anticipation to see what he's going to say. And what does he say? He says, today, this that we just read has been fulfilled Verse twenty-one and twenty-two began saying to them, "Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled." And then look at their response. It says they were all speaking well of him and were amazed by his gracious words that came from his mouth. I I want us to see this is not all that Jesus said in his sermon. This is not a model for two sentences. Sermons over, right? This is this is a, a section of it. But they they hear Jesus' words and they're amazed. But what's their response? Isn't this Joseph's son? How how can this be? This is the first thing I want us to see happening today. Point number one is that knowledge about Jesus prevented them from experiencing Jesus. That seems like a backwards thing to say, but consider how true this is. I can tell you from my own experience that I've tried to share my faith, when I've tried to share my faith with someone that I grew up with, a family member, at best I'm shrugged off you've probably had a similar experience. Have you you had that prophet in your hometown experience before where you're trying to speak truth, trying to speak scripture into somebody's life, and they can't hear it? And they can't hear it because they know you. This is exactly what's happening in this passage. The people that are gathered to hear Jesus preach couldn't get past the idea of who he was to see what he was doing. This is a reality for many of us. We've seen that same setback. We think about... When we think about how Jesus, um, excuse me, let me back up. What we think about, what we know about Jesus prevents us from experiencing him. God's desire was not for Adam and Eve to know about him. What does it say that God did with Adam and Eve after he created them? He walked with them where? In the garden. His, His purpose in creating us was for us to know him by experience, to spend time together. He wants that for all of us. And God sent Jesus to live among us to show us what it looks like to live in that kind of a relationship with God our Father. Unfortunately, what we think we know about God often gets in the way of us really knowing Him. We limit God's ability by our unwillingness to let our ideas be changed or expanded. I want you to think about it like this. I want you to, in your mind, think about something that you are really good at. It can be anything. But something that you have confidence in, that you're like, when it comes to this thing, man, I got it. I got it locked down. Right? Everybody got that in your mind? Now, I want you to answer this question to yourself. Don't say it out loud. But are you the best in the world at that thing? I can answer that for you. No, you're not. I don't care what it is. You're not the best in the world. But if we think, That we have it all figured out that we are the best when, in fact, we are not. We are limiting our ability to get better at that thing. Does that make sense to everybody? This is how many people approach their faith. They think they already know all the answers. They say to themselves, I've grown up in church. I've been going to church for 40 years. I understand what it uh, means to be a believer, to be a follower of Jesus. Now, most people would not admit that out loud but I think they certainly think it. We all have this attitude that exists in us somewhere uh, that, that makes us think that we know better than someone else. And this is what's happening in the minds of the people of Nazareth when they're saying, isn't this Joseph's son? This isn't a question about his genealogy. They know that this is Joseph's son. So what are they really saying? They were doubting and calling into question the reality of what Jesus was saying and doing. They are, they are uh, people all the time. This doesn't happen as much anymore. But when Bethany and I, when our kids were younger, we would be in the grocery store, and you would people would go one, two, three, four, five. Wait, no, that can't be right. One, two, three, four. That can't be right. I, I've seen people count four or five times to to verify that I have five children. Now they're standing there, right? It's obvious, but. What they think they know is normal versus what they see in front of them don't compute. Y'all following me on that? I think this is what happens in our lives all the time. We read the words on the page and we think we understand them, but we're not quite computing what Jesus is trying to say. Now, these people are not calling Jesus out to his face, right? But they were thinking it and they're whispering it to others, And this brings us to point number two, is that Jesus knows the truth of what's going on in our hearts. Even though they didn't ask this directly, Jesus could read the room, right? He knew what they were thinking. Have you ever been in a room where people are talking and when you walk in, like the room just goes silent and you're like, they were talking about me. Or have you ever been in a room where people are whispering and glancing at you and you go, they are talking about me. It doesn't feel good, does it? It doesn't. It's awkward. But I love it. Jesus addresses the elephant in the room. He reveals what they're thinking in their hearts. Look at this again with me at how Jesus responds to them in verse 23 and 24. Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Or In some translations, instead of proverbs, it says uh, parable or, or a saying. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. They didn't say that. To Jesus but they're thinking it things are not computing and they're going can this guy really this is Joseph's son there's no way that he's the one that's been doing all this right and he goes on to say truly I tell you no prophet is accepted in his hometown verse 23 is eerily similar to what Jesus is asked to do when he's on the cross we'll look at this much later you know probably a year or two from now but Luke chapter 23 verse 39 then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Jesus is being asked, without them actually saying anything to him, to prove himself. It's also very familiar one of the temptations we just talked about, where the enemy says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. What Jesus is experiencing is not something that will only happen here in his hometown. This is pride and attitude. This pride and attitude is exactly What led Israel from God over and over and over again. This lack of trust in the presence of proof is their trademark move. That's a line from Reliant K. I love it. It's a trademark move. This is what they do. This reaction to Jesus is the same reaction that God's people have had to God over and over and over again. They aren't acting any differently toward Jesus than they've always acted towards God. They want proof that he is who he says he is. We've talked about this so much in this study alone. About how Israel saw God's activity. They saw his protection. They saw his provision over them when they're being delivered from Egypt. Yet in spite of all of that evidence and all of God's activity, they still didn't believe. They still didn't trust him. Even though they wanted the identity of being God's people They were unwilling to actually trust God. There's such a strong parallel to the church today. The church wants to be known as followers of Jesus, but when it comes to actually following Jesus, often we are not willing. We want the identity, but we don't want God to be in control of our lives. This is the toddler saying, I'll do it myself. Right? This is the teenager who thinks they know better than everyone else. That is the attitude of the church very often. There's an extreme amount of pride in a person, in us, to think that we know better than God about what will be best for our lives. Which brings us to point number three. Jesus calls out the rebellious and prideful attitude that exists in us. To address their attitudes, Jesus reminds them, of their people's past failures, and how God responded to them. Look at verse 24 through 27 again in Luke 4. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. I don't know if you remember, but a couple of months ago we talked about that during the kid's story. In both of these examples that Jesus gives, God deals graciously with the Gentiles over the Israelites. In both accounts, it was not the Israelites that God blessed, but the foreigners, the Gentiles. And this was a sore spot because Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people. We we, we just learned about that about Abram in the kids' lesson today where Abram tells him, I'm going to make you a great nation and through you I will bless all other nations. That's Israel's identity. And so for them to see somebody else getting those blessings that they're supposed to get makes them so upset. They're the ones that are supposed to be reaping God's blessings. Remember, we, we talked about this a bunch. If you obey God's commands, he will be your God and you will be his people. Israel, God's chosen people, will be a blessing to other nations. Yet they continue to rebel against God and they did not follow his commands. So, therefore, God poured out his blessings on their neighbors and it infuriated them. Those are supposed to be their blessings. Jesus is addressing this deep-rooted and serious streak of rebellion. We've talked about how God used neighboring nations to punish Israel's rebellion against God. How they were removed from the promised land. That land that was promised to Abraham, they lost it because of their rebellion. And they were removed from this promised land. Their cities and their homes were destroyed. And they were exiled to other parts of the world. All of this because they refused to fulfill their portion of the covenant that they made with God. They did not obey god they rejected his authority in their lives so what happens in a believer's life when they reject god's authority i don't i don't want us to forget that israel in the midst of all of that rebellion kept up their appearances right they continued to have the rituals that they were supposed to have they continued to go to the synagogue when they were supposed to go They continued to sacrifice as they were called to sacrifice. But God rejected all of this religious activity because it was empty. They weren't responding to God out of love, but out of duty, out of a desire to get something from Him. This is not the only time that Jesus is going to call out this attitude later, either. Later in Matthew, He records. This kind of word from Jesus in chapter 11. Remember, I said that that Jesus starts out this ministry in Capernaum in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. He's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed by God because of their sin. He's telling this town in the region of Galilee, the miracles that I've done here, if those had been done in Sodom, they would still be here and you would be the one destroyed. That is some strong language. That is a a scathing accusation. But if anybody knew that to be true, it would be Jesus. His presence, activity, and teaching were peeling back the facade that Israel had kept up for so long. He was revealing the truth of their hearts. They were in it for themselves to identify with God just to get his blessings. That's what's happening in this story that we read today. And as we read this story and talk about what's happening in the hearts of, of the people that are there, we got to look at our own hearts too. And we got to ask questions like, how are we rebelling against God's desire to be known? There's always going to be more of God that he wants us to experience. But often we think we already know, quote unquote, and that prevents us from hearing what he's trying to say. We've got to follow that up with another question. Are we willing to let God challenge what we think we know so that he can teach us something new? If the answer is no, we might as well stop this study right here. Close the book, we're done. The whole point of this thing is for us to come to know God, right? We've been, we've been talking about it. I've been saying, and we've been agreeing together that the whole point of this study is to know God and make Him known. But if we're unwilling to hear this message from a boy that grew up in a small town, if we're unwilling to let God further develop our understanding of who He is, there is no need for us to proceed any further. In order for us to know God more progressively, we must be willing to let God challenge our beliefs and grow our faith. We don't know everything, and our understanding of who God is, what His Word says, and how He wants to work that out in our lives is far from complete. If we're willing to let God challenge us, we must also consider how we're going to respond to Him. If we're willing to be challenged, are we going to choose to follow God's lead in the face of that challenge? The people in our story responded, but not in a good way. Look at verse 28 and 30 again. It says, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Can we agree that that's a really harsh reaction to this? To want to kill him? If we are unwilling to let God challenge us or we choose to disobey, we are responding in kind. I want you to think about this. It was our disobedience that led Jesus to the cross, it was their disobedience that led Jesus to the cross. Our disobedience, our rebellion made it necessary for Jesus to die on our behalf to redeem us back to God. How how is that any different from what this crowd is doing? I believe that Luke leads off with this story to set the tone for his readers. He wants us to understand what's at stake for those that are too stubborn and prideful to hear Jesus' words. Remember that Luke is is a Gentile writing to other Gentiles. As he traveled with Paul, as he heard his teachings, as he talked about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, he no doubt understood the relationship between Israel's rebellion and Jesus' mission to save them. Luke begins with this story to show the reader how God's people were responding to Jesus and to make them ask themselves, how are you going to respond in light of what we see Israel doing with Jesus? I want to leave us with that same question today. How are you going to respond? Are you willing to let Jesus challenge what you think you already know? Much of Israel missed Jesus because of their pride. Because they said things like, isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this guy from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It would be a tragedy for us to make the same mistake. Luke has thrown down the gauntlet. That's why he begins with this story. Before you proceed any further into this book, how do you want to respond to Jesus? Do you want to let him challenge what you think you know? Are you satisfied with where you are? He's asked the most important question before diving into Jesus' teaching. Are you, the reader, willing to learn? And that's a question that only you can answer for yourself. I want all of us to spend some time with God this week, asking him, where are the areas in my life where pride and there is unwillingness to listen to what you have to say? And then release that to him as he reveals it. Let God show you who he is. Let him grow your faith. Let him challenge what you believe, what you think you know. By doing that, you are going to experience freedom because the Holy Spirit's gonna have the, the ability to work in your life in a way that he's never been able to work before because you are allowing it. As we move forward in the rest of the book of Luke, I want us to think back to this moment. As we read stories that make us go, wait, what? That's what Jesus meant by this. Come back to this moment and ask yourself, am I willing to let Jesus challenge what I think I already know? Not am I willing to let will challenge Am I willing to let Jesus challenge what I think I already know? Let's pray. Jesus, if I'm honest, this makes me a little frightened to think about changes in my life that may have to come that I'm not prepared for. And Father, I know I'm not alone in those feelings. Jesus, I ask that as we continue to study your word, as we move forward forward, in this gospel of luke god i ask that you would challenge us that the areas where we think we have it all figured out that god that you would reveal whether we do or not and i ask that you would give us hearts that are willing to listen and to obey and to move as your spirit leads god i know i speak for myself and many in this room that our desire is to know you we want to know you we we want to be followers of you let the chips fall where they may pursue you with everything that we have, whatever the cost. But God, we cannot do that in our own power. We need your presence. We need your spirit, just like Jesus did. Father, we want to see your spirit move powerfully in our lives, in our family's lives, in our friends' lives. Father, there are people all around us that are hurting, that need to know you. And the way you're going to do that is through us. But you've got to be able to use us. We've got to be willing to to let that happen in our lives. And Father, I ask the Holy Spirit would do that work for each of us. Jesus, we are in your debt. And we are in your love. And we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy towards us. Father, this week, work in our hearts, each of us individually and as a group, to bring us closer to you, to know you, to want to desire you more and more every day. Jesus, we we cannot do that on our own. We ask all of this in your name, for your sake, for your glory. Amen.